We have been going through a series called We Believe. In that series, I've tried my best as we talk about theological doctrines that we believe to do it in an expository text-driven fashion, because that's it's my preferred method of preaching. But I come today to the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in a triune God. It's very hard to pick one specific passage of Scripture and walk through and, and let that text drive it when you're talking about something that covers the whole Bible. So today, you're basically going to get a, a systematic theology presentation. Uh, I'll try my best to keep it interesting and to keep you engaged, but understand this is not necessarily a normal sermon. We've got those online if you want to join in, but this is our series we're doing this year, so we are thrilled for you to be here. Thank you for coming. Happy for you to join in, but realize this wasn't a message designed especially for a CU Friday. This, this is the everyday meal that we are trying to do here at Cedarville, entitled a series, We Believe, and today we believe in a triune God. All right, you got your notebooks out? You ready to go? I'm, I'm going to give you a preview here. Uh, you need your notebooks today because this is a lecture of some sort, all right? Now, don't take that in the bad sense because I will do my best to make it scintillating, exciting, engaging, and fun. But when you talk about a triune God, when you talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to have to take some notes, write down some verses. I'm going to have them for you on the screens, but you're not going to have time to turn and flip and follow along. So you just need to jot them down so you'll have these notes. So let me start us off in this way. You're sitting at home, it's a Saturday afternoon, you're watching football. You've got your Diet Dr. Pepper sitting beside you. Hey, it's my story, you're just living in it, right? You've got your barbecue potato chips on the other side. Because when you're my age, you have to have a diet drink in order to eat potato chips, I'm just saying. You're sitting there enjoying a great football game. You're engaged in every aspect of your favorite team playing their biggest rival. You're sitting there, your, your family's not even around because when you watch football, it's, it's a therapeutic exercise in the sinfulness of mankind in that no call is right against your team and every official is wrong, right? And so you're there enjoying the game and all of a sudden you hear it. Your first thought, who in the world is coming to my door on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of this game? You get up reluctantly, you start walking towards the door, and you see through the glass that's decorative on the side, a well-dressed man or lady standing on the other side, about four feet back, and you don't know who they are. Immediately, something inside of you, if you're as sinful as I am, starts saying, Why do you wish to bother me in my castle on a Saturday? Go away. But you open the door because mom and dad have trained you well. And so you open the door and you say, may I help you? They say, we're here to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Well, now you're at Cedarville. You sit there and think, okay, Lord, you're serving one up for me here, right? So you open the door a little wider, and then inside, if you're honest with yourself, part of you's thinking, okay, I press pause on the DVR. I know I've got the game sitting there, but I'd really rather be watching the game than having this conversation. But yes, Holy Spirit, I know I need to be having this conversation with these people. You brought them to my house, so I'll do it anyway, even though I really don't want to. Anybody else out there as sinful as I am with stuff like that? Nobody raised your hand. Y'all are making me feel real bad up here today. All right. So you open the door, they walk in, and they say to you, 
We're here to talk to you about Jesus. We're from a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And you say to them, I'm a Christian. And they say to you, so are we. And your heart begins to race and your mind begins to race and your heart's pounding in your chest and you're pacing a little bit back and forth in your mind and you're sitting here thinking, what did they teach me about them? What do they believe about God? Something's wrong, but I don't remember what it is. Lord, help me remember what it is that I'm supposed to know that they don't know right so that I can talk about what it is they're wrong on and I don't remember. And you're starting to get a little frantic and sweat starts to beat up a little bit. And all they said was they were Christians. Anybody ever been there? Okay, there's a few more of us. I feel a little bit better now. All right. So you're sitting there and you're having this conversation and all of a sudden, here it goes. And they say to you, you realize the word Trinity is never in the Bible, right? Oh, I remember what your problem is now. Yeah. (laughs) But what was it that Dr. Lee taught me in that systematic class that I was supposed to say when they said this? The doctrine of Trinity is never in the Bible. Of course I know that the Trinity word is never in the Bible because I go to church every Sunday. and Yeah, I, I know that. How do you respond? Are you prepared to respond? Are you prepared to give an answer to them for the faith that's within you? That has happened to me at my house, to many of you at your house. And if you haven't lived long enough to be in the situation where it has happened to you, it will at some point in time happen to where you encounter someone who is questioning why is it that you Christians believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? And let's be honest about this. If we were to make up a religion, we would not make it up with the Trinity involved in it because we can't explain the Trinity thoroughly. And every analogy that we come up with falls short of thoroughly explaining the Trinity. So why would you fabricate something you can't thoroughly explain? But we can understand the basics of the Trinity. So let me give you a definition to start with as we work through this. What is the Trinity? The basic definition is that we believe in one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's your definition. So you can write that short definition down later on towards the end of our discussion today. I'm going to give you the long definition in the church history councils as they laid it out for you so that you'll have it to be able to see it. It's too long to write down, but you can look it up on Google later or somewhere else. But here's your short definition. One God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You got that? All right, the next thing I want you to write down in your notebooks as you're taking notes is the basics. We're going to have our outline for the presentation today. It's going to be three basic things. First of all, we're going to walk through the fact that there is one true God, because that's what Scripture teaches us. There's one true God. But then we're also going to look at the fact that the Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equally God. So how do you have one true God with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit equally as God? And that leads to your third point, which is the Bible presents the three-in-oneness of God. And I'm going to give you a bunch of scripture references that you can write down to help you defend these three basic elements about the doctrine of the Trinity. So there's one true God, Father and Son are equally God, and the Bible presents the three in oneness of God. We begin with number one, there is one true God. Some of the scriptures that we could look to, and there's far more than what I'm going to give you today, I'm just giving you a snapshot, is Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema Israel. It's here, O Israel. And the verse says, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
The word for one at the end of the sentence I have for you on the screens is ehad. This word is one, but it is also a complex unity of one. It's the same word that you would see when you look in Genesis 2.24, where it says, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The one flesh, when the two come together, a complex unity is ehad. And so we see even here a glimpse as the Bible is talking about the oneness that is talking about a complex unity, even in expressing the oneness of God. You see there Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I'm the last, the Alpha and the Omega, if you will. Besides me, there is no God. We understand there's one God. We look to Mark 12, 29. Jesus here answers about the most important commandment. And as he's answering this, he points back to Deuteronomy 6. And he says, the most important commandment is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And we could spend a lot of time there on the fact that mere belief that there is a God is not salvation. It is faith. It is a repentance. It is having your allegiance on God's team. But here, my point with this particular verse is that it says you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that. God is one. There is a unity here. First Timothy 2.5 says to us also, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So we see from these verses in a quick just overview that there is one God. If we were to stop right there and not look at any other scriptures, then we could put forward a view that says there is one God, only one God, one true God, and that's it. And then somebody comes along and says, well, how do you understand this whole thing about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? And you wouldn't really have an answer. And this is one reason it's important for you to read the entire Bible, to meditate on the entire Bible, to memorize the Bible, to make sure that you're allowing scripture to interpret scripture. You're looking at the whole counsel of God's word. And so we move from the fact of our first premise that there is one true God to our second premise that Father, Son, and Spirit are equally God. The God the Father is usually not debated. God the Father that He exists and that He is God is something that we typically take for granted. And we do so for good reason. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, Jesus even teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 9, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You'll look at all of the Gospels, and in all of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus references God as Father. Jesus is referenced as the only begotten Son, and so we understand in our minds that God as Father is something that's just, it's assumed by us after you read through the Bible because you see it so frequently. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there's 110 times approximately that God is mentioned as Father. You look to Romans and Galatians and some other passages that I will point to you later on the screen, and you'll see God constantly referred to as Father. So we understand that God, the Father, is God. That's not the one that's typically debated. It's when you move to who is Jesus or who is the Holy Spirit that you end up running into some debate. But the Bible presents that Jesus, the Son, is also God. There are four main Christological passages that you could look to. John 1, 1 through 18 Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 uh, through 23, or Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Those are your four main Christological passages. Now, later in the year, we will do a specific message on, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. 
In that particular message, we may look at one of those four main Christological passages. But for today, my point is just to prove to you that Jesus is God, and that's how the Scriptures present Him. So here's one of the passages I like best because it's got my name in it, although I probably shouldn't like it for that reason. It's John 20, 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. Now, let me call a timeout right here. If Thomas answered to Jesus and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and if Jesus understood himself not to be God, what should Jesus have done? He should have done as we see Paul doing, as we see Peter doing, as we see others doing, who would say to him, you're not to worship me. I'm a man just as you are. You are to worship God. I am not the one that you should bow down to. Bow down to God. But instead of Jesus saying to Thomas, no, you're wrong. Don't do that. Jesus responds to this worship that's being presented to him. And his response is, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What's the claim that's being made here by Jesus? He's God. He's made this claim all throughout. It's not unique, but in this, there's a a special emphasis on the fact that Jesus is accepting the worship as God because Jesus claims to be God. That's the blasphemy that he was crucified for is that he claimed to be God. We also see this in several other ways. He made direct claims to be God. And we can see this in verses like John 1, 1, where it talks about in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. John 1, 18, John 10, 30, where he says, I and the father are one. And that particular verse is important because there Jesus makes the claim to be one with God, the father. Now, some of the different cults that are out there in existence will make statements like Jesus never claimed to be God. If he claimed to be one with God the Father, if he accepted worship, then it follows logically that Jesus did claim to be God. John 17, 3, where it says that there's only one true God, but none has seen him except those who have seen the Son because the Son represents God. He taught with authority, not as scribes. He wasn't as a standard teacher. He taught as one who had authority. He forgave sins. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And in Mark 2, 5 through 10, we see him forgiving sins, and he does so even as he's healing somebody because he says to them, which is easier, to tell you, take up your bed and walk or to forgive sins? And he does so to demonstrate to them that he is God, and he is making a claim at that point to be God. He performed divine works, creation, sustaining of life. He did several things in the New Testament. If we just walk through with our mind, we remember the miracles that he performed where he turned the water into wine. You remember the miracles he did where he fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. You remember when he calmed the seas and told them to be still and the disciples marveled, who is this who even commands the wind and the waves? You think about what he did when he healed the blind, when he healed the lame, when he called Lazarus forth from the dead, when he himself went to the grave and got up from the grave three days later and the stone was rolled back so that we could see that the Savior is risen and he appeared and he showed himself to many. Jesus claimed to be God during his life here on earth. He proved that he was God with his miracles that were a testimony to the power of the gospel. He got up from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is coming again in power. The Bible presents a very clear message that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is not God, what does Paul tell us? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Our hope of the gospel, our hope for a resurrection, 
Our hope for heaven is that Jesus is who he said he is. And if he's not, we have no hope at all. Here we see now, uh, turning to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit also, Scriptures claim that the Holy Spirit is God. How many of you are going to go see Star Wars? All right. Yeah, I'm there with you. I already got my daughter ready. We've watched all the movies. I prepared her. We've watched the Clone Wars. We've done all that type of stuff. We're there. We're rewatching the Clone Wars, too. We're hardcore. And we have lightsaber duels at our house, which is pretty fun. It's a great thing about having kids. You get toys and you don't have to be the person who goes and buy. I'm not buying this for myself, sweetheart, I promise. This is for my son and my daughter. And yes, they do need four lightsabers, and I don't know why, but yeah, anyway. And they need the good ones that make the sounds while you turn them and all this. But you understand when you, when you talk about Star Wars, sometimes that affects our understanding of the Holy Spirit because, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes people want to think that the Holy Spirit is used the force, Luke, that there's some force out there that's not a person. But what the Bible presents for us is that the Holy Spirit is a person. How do we know the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, you can't sin against an inanimate object, but you can sin against the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy is a sin particularly committed against the Holy Spirit. So we understand the Bible presents the Holy Spirit as a person, not just as a person, but as God and as equal with God. And one of the best passages for that is Acts 5, 3, and 4. I've got it for you on the screens where it says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice what the text does there. The text there equates the Holy Spirit. You have lied to the Holy Spirit, which you have not lied to man, but to God. We understand that the Bible presents the Holy Spirit as God. We also see that in 1 Corinthians, where you have verses 3.16 and then also 6.19, which talks about us collectively or us individually being the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And verses uh, 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We understand that Scripture presents that God, the Holy Spirit, is God. So if we stopped there, where do we end up? God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equally presented as God. If we stop right there, we just end up confused, right? How do you have one and how do you have three and how does that fit together? And you start thinking through how would you articulate this and you understand why the early fathers, you understand why others started trying to put together a concept of what God has revealed himself to us as because this is God's revelation not our creation. And so we try to put together, what does it mean to have the one? What does it mean to have three who are equally God? And that's where we come up putting those together with a doctrine of the Trinity. And we also see throughout scripture that the Bible presents the three in oneness of God. And I've got several verses for you here. So we'll move quickly through some of these beginning in Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God, that's God the Father, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God, and you see the spirit there, 
was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a clue for us reading back after understanding God's full revelation that there is God the Spirit there. And we see John 1, 1 through 3, which talks about in the beginning was the Word, the Word meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him, not anything was made. So looking with a New Testament perspective, we understand that even beginning in creation, there are glimpses of the Trinity here. We understand also that God created the universe and the world and all the things in it by doing what? He spoke. He spoke with words. Did he need to use words? No, he could have snapped his fingers, metaphorically speaking. He could have done something else, but he used the word. He had an intentionality. He was strategic in how he revealed himself to us and how he created the world for us. Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said with a singular verb, Let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, after our, plural, likeness. Genesis 3.22, The Lord, Yahweh, singular there, God, said, and the verb singular there, behold, the man has become like one of us, plural, in knowing good and evil. And I understand that particularly in Genesis, there's the plural of majesty where it's debated about particularly the use of Elohim and other things as to, as to how that relates. But there are glimpses that we can see, maybe not full arguments that can be proven, but glimpses that we can see of how God has revealed himself from the very beginning. We move to Isaiah 6, 8, where in Isaiah 6, 8, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us, plural, then I said, here I am, send me. How would you like to be somebody reading Isaiah 6, 8 without the context of history that we have, without the great theological minds putting things together for us and and making it easier for us to understand and trying to understand this particular verse, here am I, who shall I send and who will go for us, then here am I, send me. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. It's one of the most frequently quoted verses because it helps you see all three persons of the Trinity at one time. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God. So we see Jesus and the spirit descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And then behold a voice. Where does the voice come from? We would say it comes from the father. Why? Because he calls the son, my beloved son. The Father from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see in this particular verse, all three present at one time. So when we get to one of the heresies called modalism, which talks about the fact that God was the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Gospels, the Spirit after Acts, you can look to this verse and say, no, that doesn't really fit with this verse. We see all three at one time. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we know it as the Great Commission. It says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with all three names, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke 135, in the incarnation, the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, the Father, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. John 10, 30, Jesus declares when he says, I and the Father are one, we see that Jesus is the I in that sentence and is the same as the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus says there, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. In that verse, we see all three. And in that verse, we see the word allos that I have listed for you in italics after another. And the reason I've got that highlighted is because in the Greek, the word allos is used. And you understand that heteros from heterosexual means that it's after someone of another kind, but allos means someone of the same kind. So what this text is telling us is it's talking about the Holy Spirit being deity and being another person, both in the same verse. They're going to send a helper, and that helper is going to be an allos helper. It's going to be a helper, another helper, but another helper of the exact same kind. If there's another helper of the exact same kind as Jesus, what is that helper? That helper is deity. So here we see a picture, a glimpse into the Trinity. John 15, 26 says, but when this helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, meaning Jesus. When you have people tell you that the Trinity is nowhere in Scripture, the word, the letters, Trinity, may be nowhere in Scripture, but just look at these verses and think about these verses that are presenting to you a Trinitarian understanding and revelation of God. Acts 1, 7, and 8 says, He, Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Romans 15, 16 says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God the Father so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, all three mentioned there in one verse. 1 Corinthians 12, four through six says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. 2 Corinthians 121, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All of these verses that we don't look at and immediately think Trinity, but we see them as we look now that how the Trinity is present all throughout the scriptures. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen in the benediction given. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Another Trinitarian verse. Galatians 6, 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. 1 Peter 1, 2, and I'll stop with this one, even though we could list more and more and more verses, says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So do you see how the Bible presents a three-in-oneness of God? How we see in many verses over and over and over again, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So how do we come to an orthodox view and to an orthodox understanding of the Trinity? The Council of Constantinople in AD 381 is typically what we look at as the orthodox view of the Trinity. It's small print. There's a lot of it. I have it up here for you, but let me walk through it briefly and quickly with you. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and tip the hand. They believe in the Holy Spirit too is your Trinitarian statement. One Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
eternally begotten. And so what you see here is they're battling against somebody saying, well, he was just a man and he was adopted by God after his baptism. He was eternally begotten. This is an eternal relationship. This is not something that happened just in the New Testament after a certain point. It calls him light from light. Now, when you look out at our lights, particularly on the stage here as they're brighter, how do you know when one light stops and when another light starts? How do you understand when light separates itself from each other? And what they're trying to communicate here is it's light from light. It's as though God and Jesus are the same light. It is light from very light. It's the exact same substance. And so Jesus and God the Father are the same. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us humans and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was incarnate of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and became fully human for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That is Jesus. That's what the council said about the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus that we serve today in 381 AD. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in the holy, universal, apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We understand that through church history, it was Tertullian who first coined the word Trinity. But do you understand why? Do you understand that after looking at the scriptures and seeing that there is one God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all presented as God and that there is the three in oneness in the scriptures that then he looks at that and he says, the best way I can describe this is a trinity. It is a three in oneness. It is, it is three persons in one equal substance for all eternity. And so he seeks to use that word, the Cappadocians, Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, they work also to do the same thing, to steer through the various heresies that have been shown throughout history. And some of those heresies can continue to come back. So I want to look at just three of them briefly. I've chosen strategically three heresies that have modern day implications for you so that this will be applicable to you and to your life right now. The three heresies are tritheism. This would be, the second one is modalism, and the third is Arianism. So as we start looking at these three, we start with tritheism. Perhaps your modern day example would be the Mormons or some other world religions which look at a plurality of deities. They're focusing on the fact that Jesus was the God, that the Holy Spirit was God, that the Father was God. They're focusing on that fact and they're saying there are many gods. They lack focus on the unity that's found in the Trinity. You also have modalism. It's called by many different names. If you're reading through your church history books, you'll see uh, modalistic monarchianism. You'll see Sabellianism after Sabellius, who is a teacher around the third century AD. You'll also see it in modern day times among groups called oneness Pentecostals or Jesus only Pentecostals. What this view believes is that there was one God who manifest, and that manifest is a key word for this group. It's one God who manifests himself as God the Father in the Old Testament, and then that one God manifests himself as Jesus in the Gospels, and that one God manifests himself as the Spirit in Acts moving forward. But where that, that group messes up is you can't be three in one in one space at a time. So it leads to another issue called patripassianism, which means the Father was actually present with Christ on the cross, suffering with Christ while he was on the cross. What's the problem with modalism? 
Modalism doesn't accurately represent three persons who can exist at the same time as in the baptism of Jesus where we see Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending, the Father commenting above. It doesn't represent what the Scriptures teach us about who God is, and so modalism was ruled out as a heresy. Another heresy would be the heresy of Arianism. It was created by Arius, who was a bishop of Alexandria. He was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. The modern day example might be the Jehovah's Witnesses. This view believes that God the Father created the Son at some point. And you remember when we read, it talked about the eternal aspects, begotten, not made, combating this particular heresy. This heresy believes that there was a time when the Son was not. It emphasizes the only begotten and the unity passages, contends that Jesus was the firstborn, but that it was not an eternal relationship. And it's important for us to recognize the Trinity as an eternal relationship. I wish I had time to go through the Christophanies and some other things, but time is short and it's closing out. And so I want to point you to a few things and then I want to close with some practical application. Before I go to the practical application, though, let me show you what I pulled from a Jehovah's Witnesses website last night. This is last night. All right, it's there. I've got the, I I was going to screenshot it, but it would have taken too many slides. So I've got the reference for you down here at the bottom. You can find it if you were to Google it. They say on a page which talks about the Trinity, should we believe in the Trinity? For one thing, the Bible does not mention the word Trinity. There's the opening line. It's usually the gotcha line for people who haven't studied theology and don't understand. Yeah, the Bible doesn't mention it, but the Bible explains it and reveals it all throughout. They say Jesus never claimed to be God or to be equal with God. I would disagree with them on that as well as we've looked at some of the verses even today. They say, and they quote the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Christian Bible, including the New Testament, has no Trinitarian statements or speculations concerning a Trinitary deity. That's what you'll find on their website right now. That's why you need to understand your theological position so that you can evangelize, so that you can defend, so that you can use apologetics for your faith to give a reason for the faith that is within you. Let me give you four practical applications in closing real quickly. First of one, why does this matter to you? Why should you understand how to defend the Trinity? Theologically, it's essential. Theologically, we understand that this affects our belief about God. This affects our belief about whether Jesus is God or whether Jesus is not God. And if Jesus is not God, we have no hope, we have no faith. It affects our understanding of the atonement. How could Jesus, if he's not God, if he's not fully God and fully man as the Bible teaches he is, how could Jesus then be the sacrifice for all mankind on the cross? He couldn't be. He would be a sacrifice for himself if he were just a man. But he was fully man and he was fully God and that's presented from us in the virgin birth so that when we look at the atonement, we see a substitutionary sacrifice that allows us then to have forgiveness of sins by repenting and putting our faith and trust in Christ. Salvation is at stake in the doctrine of the Trinity. Community. Number two application for you is community. The Trinity teaches us about community. God has always existed in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God created us to live in community. You'll remember that God created us and he said it is not good for man to be alone. God created us and has driven us to relationships with other people. He has driven us to marriage, to have children, to society, to churches. And even if you have introverted tendencies like I do, you understand you are not on an island and you have to have people and relationships in this life. God has driven us to be a community-oriented people. And we also learn from this that God didn't need us. It wasn't like God was lonely out there and he needed somebody to commune with. God had the perfect Trinity there with him. The Trinity also teaches us about love. 
1 John 4, 7 and 8 says that love is from God and that God is love. There's an eternal love that is represented within the members of the Trinity. You see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. Love is eternally demonstrated. It is something revealed to us. It is in the relationship of the Trinity itself. It's spoken of 800 times in the Bible. And we understand that love is best demonstrated and that while we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life for us. I could say more there, but with time, I'll move to the next one. Equal yet different. I think this is important for us. We understand that the members of the Trinity were equal in substance, yet they each had distinct roles. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were equal, yet they had different assignments. They had different roles. They had different things that they were to do. All humanity is equal in substance, yet God gives us distinct roles, different assignments. What God has called me to do is not what God has called you to do. It doesn't mean that what God has called one of us to do is any less important than what God has called anybody else to do. If God has called you to make shoes, make shoes well. If God has called you to be a janitor and clean toilets, clean toilets for the glory of God. If God has called you to teach history, teach history and teach it well. If God has called you to write, write with all of the passion of your creativity and the use of words as God has gifted you so that you do so with excellence for your creator. Whatever God has given you to do, whether that's to build buildings and bridges, whether you're gonna be an engineer, whether you're gonna be a nurse to serve others, whatever God has given you, service does not mean you're less than somebody else. We see in the Trinity that the Father sent the Son, that the Holy Spirit proceeds, and that all of them were equal. Service is from God. Equal yet different is from God. The Son came to serve and not to be served. And fourthly, in how we pray. The model prayer begins and starts us off with our Father who art in heaven. Matthew 6, 9. We pray in the name of Jesus based on John 14, 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, based on Ephesians 6, 18, or Romans 8, 26 through 27, it doesn't mean you have to pray this way every time you pray, but when you hear somebody pray our Father, and you hear them pray in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're trying to be biblical in how they express their prayers. And so we understand there's even a Trinitarian aspect to the way that we pray, to the way that we work, and to the way that we live today. I'll close with this quote. Concerning the Trinity, Millard Erickson cited in his Systematic Theology textbook, someone once said, so I don't know where it's from, but here's the quote. On the Trinity, try to explain it, you'll lose your mind, but try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. Is it difficult to understand fully? Of course it is. Why? Because he's God and we're not. Because he's infinite and we're finite. Try to explain it thoroughly so you understand every detail of the Trinity, you lose your mind. Deny it, you lose your soul. We serve a glorious and a gracious God who has revealed himself through Scripture to us in Trinitarian form. It's important for us to be able to defend it, to articulate it, and to live it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation to us. We thank you for the things that we can learn through the doctrine of the Trinity. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've given us on the cross and for Jesus Christ who provided salvation. So Lord, may we never take it for granted. May we think deeply about these things. May we apply them to our lives. May we live them out so that we will be ready to give a defense for the faith that is within us. And may we use our lives for your glory and may we use our mouths and the meditations of our heart so that they'll be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. And you are dismissed.